Uh, if you've got a Bible there, whether it's paper or uh, on a screen, please keep it open. Uh, we will be staying in Genesis uh, 1 and 2, but we will be looking at uh, quite a lot of detail there. So uh, best for you if you can uh, look on as I refer to things. Uh, the story is told of a, uh, a police officer, a senior police officer who um, uh, became a believer, who heard the good news about Jesus and put his trust in him and, and as often happens, uh, decided he wanted others to know this good news as well. And uh, so he heard about the opportunity uh, to go into schools and share the gospel with kids. And he thought, well, that's a great opportunity. I, I want to do that and I can do it. I could do that in my lunch hour. And uh, so the policeman got in touch with uh, his local school and organised to become a scripture teacher and uh, went down there for his first lesson in his lunch hour. Of course, he was still uh, wearing his full police uniform and he's a big hulking kind of guy. And he went in for his first lesson. He'd looked at the material and the first lesson was on Jericho. He thought, oh, whatever, okay, we'll, we'll start with Jericho. He sat down, pulled out a chair, put out a chair, sat down, called the kids down the front, so they were right at his feet, and he said, right. Who broke down the walls of Jericho? And all the little kids sitting on the carpet started to really sort of cower and and shuffle nervously and look at each other until one of the boys put his hand up and said, Sir, my name is Bruce Jones. I don't know who did it, but it wasn't me. (laughs) Now, the police officer thought that Bruce Jones was being a little bit cheeky, but he didn't want to come down too hard. Uh, and didn't know the school's discipline policy yet. So he thought, I'll, I'll go to the principal after the lesson and I'll see what should be done. So he went to the principal, explained what had happened, and the principal said, Bruce Jones, you say? I know Bruce Jones. He's a good lad. If he said he didn't do it, he didn't do it. <laughs> At this point, the policeman thought, what's going on here? Everyone's just having a lend me, or they're really ignorant. I'm not sure what's going on. I know, I'll write to the Department of Education and see if they can sort something out. They wrote to the Department of Education, told them the story about the walls of Jericho, and the department replied, Dear Sir, we are very sorry to hear about the walls of Jericho. Please send us a quote and we'll see what we can do. (laughs) Now, uh, I suspect that story is not real, uh, not true, uh, never happened, and yet, obviously, it has a point. And the point of the story is that we live in a culture that perhaps once upon a time knew a lot more about the Bible and what's in it and what it's about than the culture that we live in today. Now, it's quite possible that there might be some people here this morning who are actually going, I don't get the joke, who did break the walls of Jericho. And can I just say, if that's you this morning, it's wonderful that you're here because in this series we're going to answer that question, but not just who, who broke down the walls of Jericho, but why does it matter? See, because I wonder if even for many of you who do know who broke the walls of Jericho down, could you answer the question, but why is that important? Why is it important for us to know, other than sort of that's, you know, it was impressive, an impressive display of God's power, or perhaps uh, we're meant to be like Joshua somehow, strong and courageous, some kind of more moral lesson. Is that really why it's in the Bible, or is there perhaps some greater significance? Is there perhaps some greater story, in fact, that holds the whole Bible together, of which that little episode at Jericho plays an important part. So that you can know how it does, so that you can know how it actually points in the end to Jesus. Jesus who 
was called Joshua by his mum, as a matter of fact. What does it mean for Jesus to be the greater Joshua, the greater God saves, as his name meant? Uh, Now, I guess that story is also uh, an introduction to a series uh, where that's the goal. The goal is for us to go all the way through the Bible from beginning to end and see how even though it is 66 books written by 40 authors over perhaps 1,800 years or thereabouts, it is also one unified story, God's story, God's plan of which you are actually inclu- to, in which you are actually included uh, so that we can know the God who made the world and know his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, around whom the whole story hangs together. Now, uh, I just want to tell you right up front uh, that I didn't make this stuff up. That is, uh, this didn't, this, all, the, all the, that you're going to learn this term didn't come from my clever little mind. Uh, I, it was passed on to me. I've learnt this stuff. I remember being a young man and being taught what's called biblical theology, this idea of one story that holds the whole Bible together, and just learning it going shivers down my spine. Like, this is just incredible. It just testifies so powerfully to the divine nature of God's word and helps me to understand how great the Lord Jesus Christ is in God's plans. Uh, it was passed on to me by, uh, you know, through books, as is often the way. This, this, guy, this book, Gospel and Kingdom, by a guy called Graham Goldsworthy. He's actually a Queenslander, believe it or not. Lives on the Gold Coast, uh, still alive. Don't think he's actually teaching anymore, or he, he may be. But this book, written in 1981, uh, was really uh, foundational to sort of popularising, in a sense, or bringing to the churches uh, this idea of the Bible as one story, at least in that generation. But then in 2003, uh, an English guy, Vaughan Roberts, who was, uh, you know, had heard, you know, been taught by Graham Goldsworthy, he wrote this book, God's Big Picture, which is in a sense just an easier version. And uh, the studies that we're doing this uh, term in our growth groups are based on this book, God's Big Picture by uh, Vaughan Roberts. So kudos to those guys, but they didn't make it up either. See, what we're actually learning today is from Jesus himself. And so I want to take you, first of all, before we go to Genesis, I want to take you to what I reckon is the most important verse in the Bible. There's a lot of verses in the Bible, and so it's obviously a big call to say that there is one verse that is the most important verse in the Bible. You might even think that's kind of blasphemous or something in some way. Here's what I mean, though. One verse in the Bible that teaches us how to read the rest of the Bible So so it's not sort of pitting one verse against all the others and saying this is the best. But this is the most important verse, I think, for teaching us how to read the Bible. It's Luke chapter 24, verse 27. If you've got a Bible, feel free to find it. Uh, I'll set the scene for you. Uh, Two disciples of Jesus are walking along the road somewhere between Jerusalem and Emmaus. A third person comes up to join them and asks them what they're talking about. And they say, this is after Jesus' death, they say, well, we've been talking about everything that's been going on. And the, the third person says, well, what exactly? What's, tell me what's been going on. And they say, what? How, how can you not know? Where have you been, under a rock or something? You know, all about Jesus. We, we thought he was going to be the Christ, the great king, the Messiah. But then they crucified him on the cross and it was three days ago and we just don't know what's going on. And the third person, who it turns out was Jesus incognito, raised from the dead, uh, did this. Luke chapter 24, 
verse 27 says, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, which is shorthand for the Old Testament, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. So Jesus has died and he's risen again, and now his disciples are ready to have the Old Testament, to re- ready to have their scriptures unlocked because he has now fulfilled what they are all pointing to. And that's what he teaches them. And it's spine-tingling stuff. It's, it's heart-burning stuff, in fact. Because later on, Jesus uh, stops with them and has a meal and then disappears. And once he's gone, they realise who he is and they say, oh, no wonder. No wonder our hearts were burning within us as he explained all that to us. Now, my hope is that as what was explained to them is explained to you, your heart would burn within you as well. That you would be amazed and that you would be profoundly impacted as you understand better who Jesus is and how central he is to all God's plans and how he really is the only one worthy of all glory and honour and praise so that in your life, you would want to and be able to give him exactly what he deserves, to praise, to know and to praise and worship the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I wonder if you hear about what happened on the road to Emmaus and in the meal afterwards, you're thinking, oh, man, I wish I could have been there. I want to say to you that it's quite likely that it's actually better for you to be here and now. And that's because everything that Jesus explained to his disciples, they wrote it down. They wrote it down and it was brought together in what we have in front of us here, the New Testament. And we've got the full thing. We've got it all. We've got Old Testament, New Testament. We've got promise and fulfilment. We've got everything that all those disciples learned and then, and then uh, meditated on and, and understood through the Spirit of God. And here it is for us between the covers of this book. I think we might even have a greater privilege than those disciples did in their day. So let's go. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God. Stop there. Four words in. In the beginning, God. I think it's really important that we stop there because here we're told something really profound that we need to do our best to get, wrap our heads around. And that is that there was a beginning and God was already there. That, that before anything else was, before anything began, there was God. He was there in the beginning. He was there before the beginning. He is uniquely eternal. It's hard to imagine, isn't it? Because we can't conceive of a world that isn't matter of a world that isn't in a place, of a world that you can't see, feel, taste and touch, of a world where there's only God. But that's how it was in the beginning. God alone is an uncreated being. Uh, This is one of those things in a scripture class. I taught scripture for over 20 years and every year kids would want to know who made God. Come on, just lay it out plain for us. Tell us who made God. And every year you try to convince them Nobody made God. Isn't that amazing? God is different to everyone and everything else. He's the creator. He's uncreated. 
yeah, but who made him? You know, that's how it would always come back. Because it's, it's so hard to conceive of, and yet it's true. God is unique in this way. He alone is the creator. So, in the beginning, nothing except God. Only God. But not lonely God. This is really important to understand as well. So you imagine if it were you, only you, all alone, by yourself, nothing else, no one else. Are you getting a bit sort of, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want that to be the world. But it was different for God. And the reason it was different for, for God is because God, again, unlike you and I, God is three persons in one being. Three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit in one being. Now, it takes the whole Bible to really flesh this out. Pardon the pun. Uh, Flesh. Anyway, uh, but I think even right here in chapter 1 of Genesis, we get a few little clues pointing to this Trinitarian nature of God. Uh, One of them is in verse 26 of chapter 1, where God is making the man and the woman. And he says... Uh, let us make mankind in our image. Now, some people have said, uh, that's just like the royal plural. You know, when the queen says, we are not amused, and she really means, I'm not happy. Uh, that's not what's going on here, though. And, and here's another clue that we know that's not what's going on, that God is somehow in communion and having a conversation within himself. When you go back to chapter 1, verses 1 to 3, listen. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, the earth was formless and empty, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. The image there is like a a, a mother bird with its wings sort of fluttering like this and and, and, uh, waiting for its eggs to hatch. That's the image. And God said, let there be light. Now, did you spot Father, Spirit, and son. You might think, well, spirit, yes, because named there. But what if in the beginning God the Father created the heavens and the earth, spirit of God hovering over the waters, ready to bring it to life? But where's Jesus? Where's the son? And God said. And God said. You see, Genesis isn't the only book of the Bible that starts with the words, in the beginning. There's another book of the Bible, John's Gospel, which actually starts in exactly the same way, in the beginning. But it continues, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was God, sorry, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. And a little later on, the Word became flesh. So who is the word of God that was there in the very beginning and who Colossians 1, 15 and 16 says that everything that was made was made by him and through him and for him? It's the Son. It's Jesus Christ. And so when God speaks, the world is being made through the Son of God. And God said. So only God but certainly not lonely God And this is really important to understand because one thing that it means, and there are many things that it means, but one thing that it means is that the world was not made out of some need within God. 
God does not need the world. He wasn't acting out of some sort of compulsion, either you know, some sort of external circumstance that sort of produced the world or some sort of internal need. God created out of love. God created out of his very own initiative. That from the beginning of time, God enjoyed eternal loving relationship within his own Godhead. Father, Son and Spirit. Father, loving Son and Spirit. Spirit, loving Father and Son and Son, loving Spirit. And Father, perfectly united without any need. And yet, the love was so great that it overflowed in the expression of the universe, in the creation of the universe. See, the reason that there is something and not nothing, the reason that there is everything and not nothing, is because God is love and he chose to set his love and his affection beyond himself on the world that he made. That's why we're here to know the love of God, to experience the love of God. It's amazing, isn't it? And it's really important that we understand that. It will become more important as we go through this series. God takes the initiative and the world is the expression of his love. And what God made, this world that God made, was good. Just as God is good, a good world from a good God. He made everything from nothing. Isn't that astounding? I mean, I I, I suspect you've never tried to make something out of nothing. You know that it's futile, that it wouldn't work, and yet that is exactly how God did it. He spoke, and with the power of his word, things came into being. You notice there in verse 2, the earth was formless and empty, two important words that shape the rest of the chapter. The earth had no form, and it was empty. And so the way that God goes about his creation is he gives the world form. That's what happens in the first three days of creation. Uh, He creates the day and the night, separates the two. He creates the skies and the waters, separates them from one another. He separates the waters from the land and creates those forms, those spaces. And then in days four, five, and six, he sets about filling those spaces so that now the world, the world has form and it is full. He fills the day and the night with the sun and the moon. He fills the, uh, the, the sky with the birds and the, the waters with the, the sea creatures. And he fills the land with the living creatures. And finally, he makes mankind to complete his work to complete his good work to make it very good god makes adam and eve he makes the man and he makes the woman out of the dust of the ground he makes them but unlike all the other creatures he makes them special he makes them in his image as it says there in verse 26 let us make mankind in our image in our likeness now what does that mean Well, it means that in some sense, you and I are like God. You and I are like God. We're not God. We're not gods. But in some sense, you and I are like God. What a privilege to bear the image of God, to be his representatives in the world. What does it mean? Well, we've got a few clues here. Firstly, 
We already saw that when God says, let us make man in our image, that means something about God. We've learned something about God, but it also means something about us if we're made in his image. That we're made for relationship. That God doesn't just make Adam. He makes Adam and Eve. And then he says to Adam and Eve, you make many more people. Go and fill the earth. See, we were made for relationship. We're capable of relationship in a way that no other creature is capable to know, of knowing God and living rightly in relationship with him and of knowing each other in the same kind of way that we know God. It is an amazing privilege to be made like God in that way and to be able to relate heart to heart, knowing him and each other. Notice too, and I think this is also part of what it means to be made in the image of God, we are made male and female. Think again of the diversity within God, Father, Son and Spirit. There is a similar diversity reflected in the way that God has made mankind. Now this is not unique to mankind, of course. Uh, The other creatures are made male and female as well. But I think that being made in God's image is reflected in our maleness and, and femaleness. And notice that both are made in the image of God. And that means that men and women are absolutely equal in value, equal in the, in the ways in which they are like God, and yet different from each other. A man is not a woman and a woman is not a man, and God designed us to be different so that we could be complementary to each other. And I don't mean just say nice things to each other. That, that we would actually belong together and fit in a certain way in relationship, man and woman, and be interdependent with one another. I was thinking about that, uh, Joe, that old Joe Jackson song the other day, what, um, Real Men, you know that song? What's a man now? What's a man mean? Is he rough and is he rugged? Is he cultural and clean? Uh, man makes a gun. Man goes to war. Man can do all these other things. And if there's war between the sexes then there'll be no people left. Well, that's true, isn't it? We weren't made to be at war. We were made to be in loving relationship, complementary with each other. And I tell you, if we could get that right, so many of the other problems would go away. That's how it was made to be, male and female. And Adam is a real fan of this design, can I just say. Have you noticed? You see this, uh, this first wedding? Because uh, that's really what's going on here, I think. Uh, when Eve is made, uh, she's formed out of his side. He doesn't know about it. He's under a general. And, uh, and, and she gets created, and then he's, there's this sanctuary, and he's standing at the front of the sanctuary, and, and the proud father brings his bride towards him. And he just sees her for the first time, And he breaks out in song or poetry. I don't know if it was sung or just spoken. These are his first words, the first words of a man. He says, I like what I see. No, he he says it better than that. He says, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She's come from me and now she's being brought back to me. This is where she belongs. She shall be called, whoa, man. (laughs) She's that good, right? And she was made for him, to belong to him, for them to belong to each other, as a matter of fact. 
not in a kind of possessing way that's seeking your own good, but in a giving way that says we belong together, together we make home. And in this good world and in this good creation of the man and woman, notice how personal it is between God and mankind. That though the other animals were also formed from the dust by God, it's only Adam who has the breath of life breathed into him. Remember, God spoke and Adam was made. God, the word of God, Jesus, the word of God was involved in the creation of the man and the spirit of God. In Hebrew, the words breath and spirit are the same word. So the breath of God, the spirit of God from God himself is breathed into the nostrils. How intimate is that? Breathed into the nostrils of the man and then he becomes a living being animated by the Spirit of God, indwelt by the Spirit of God. That's God's plan for his people, that they would be that special to him that he would live in them. Mankind is indeed a special creature and he's given this special environment uh, to live in. In fact, it's so special and what makes it so special is that God actually lives there with him or at least visits from time to time, hard to know exactly how it works. Later on in chapter 3 we read that God was walking in the garden in the cool of the evening. Because that's what God wants. He wants proximity, he wants relationship. That's why he made man and woman, so that he might enjoy them and we might enjoy him. And do you notice the, the direction that creation heads to, to day 7, you know, this day where there's no more work to be done, this day of rest? I, I don't think it means that God never lifted a finger again or never intended to lift a finger again, but the work was finished. It was complete. With mankind, it was very good and it was complete. And at that moment, he sat back and he surveyed and he enjoyed in the work that satisfied him. Notice that that final day, there's no evening and morning. All the other days, there was evening and there was morning. There was evening and there was morning. There was evening and there was morning. But you get to day seven and there's no conclusion because it was God's intention that this satisfaction, this perfect relationship between him and creation and within creation, that's how it was meant to be. The world belongs to God. That's, that's what we've seen here. Right? He is the creator. It belongs to him. He owns it. And yet because he loves what he has made, he shares his creation with us. Not to own like he does, we don't have rights over it like he does. We are given the privilege and the responsibility of being stewards of this good world that he has made. But it's still his. And we've always got to keep that in mind. This is God's world. If you borrow my car, I expect you to treat it well. I expect you would want to treat it well. You'd want to return it how you found it. Maybe even with a full tank of petrol. No, you don't have to, really. If you borrow the car, you don't have to. That's fine. It's like that with God's world, right? We understand the privilege of living in this world, but that it's his world, and we want to live in a way that acknowledges that and respects that and therefore cares for the world that he's made as he intended. And part of that, a big part of that, is doing the good work that he designed us to do. 
See, this idea of image, being made in the image of God, is also an idea of being a representative in the world. So God rests, but he passes on his work. He delegates, he deputises his work. So another way that mankind was made like God is that we were made to work like God. We were made to be creative, not to be creators, but to be creative in the same way that God was. And you can see that in the way that the the job description that is given uh, to Adam and Eve. God blessed them in verse 28 and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish, etc. See, this is what God did, isn't it? He brought form, he subdued what was unruly, he brought form to it and then he filled it. And he says now to mankind, you are to go and extend what I was doing. You are to subdue, you are to give form and you are to fill the earth just as I have been doing. And so God, we read in chapter 2 in the sort of more ground level uh, creation account, we read about man's original workplace, that God planted a garden. How good is that? I love that image. God was a gardener. He planted a garden and he made it for mankind. And he placed them there and his intention was that they would serve an apprenticeship within the garden. So that the garden was, uh, we read, a, a, a sort of a garden with boundaries, some sort of uh, wall around it that defined it. And God placed Adam and Eve there as his image bearers to do an apprenticeship, to learn the tools of the trade. You notice what, what happens in the garden? Uh, God brings all the, parades all the animals before Adam and he has to name them, which is just what God had done on a grand scale. God called the greater light the sun and the lesser light moon. He called something day and he called something night. He gave names to all the things that he makes with the animals. He brings them to Adam and he says, what do you reckon? What should we call this? A rhinoceros? How about rhinoceros? Yes, let's go with rhinoceros. And so on and so forth. See, Adam is being like God in this. And as he serves his apprenticeship, the intention is that he won't stay in the garden because it's just a defined, localised place, as we read there in Genesis 2, God's plan is that his glory would fill the earth, that as his image bearers multiply and fill the earth and spread around the earth, so would God's glory, because he is, they are representing him and doing his work across the world. God's people, in God's place, under his rule and enjoying his blessing. You see how the pattern is established? That's the pattern that we're learning to see in Genesis 1 and 2 and that we'll be looking for, for the rest of, throughout the rest of the story. Each week, where is the pattern up to? You know, is, it, is, it, is it growing or, or is it actually being corrupted? And what's the plan from here? And we learn that in the garden... In the middle of the garden, there's a tree. And I hesitate to mention it because I understand that this is the big question mark, really, isn't it, over this passage? Because if you know where the story goes, you know that that tree plays a big part in it. God puts the tree in the middle of the garden and he says to the man and the woman, or he says, uh, do not eat of it, Because if you eat of it, you'll surely die. And you've got to ask, why, God? Why the tree? 
Because surely if you hadn't put the tree there, then everything would have been fine. Nothing would have gone wrong. But it would have been a very different world and not necessarily in a good way. You see, that tree provided an opportunity for genuine relationship. See, God created a good world, remember, a very good world, and not just in that it was without you know, imperfection, but it was a moral world that God made. It was a world where there is right and wrong, where there is obedience and disobedience, or at least the potential, where there is faith and unbelief, where life actually matters because there is a choice to be made. God actually wants a genuine connection with you. In fact, what what he wants is for you to respond to his love in kind, to trust him because you know that he loves you, to obey him because you know that his ways are good and that he only wants what's best for you. And so we have this opportunity, Adam and Eve had this opportunity to express love towards the God that they were made for. The tree provides that opportunity that opportunity to choose God's glory, to choose God's rule and not grasp for their own. So there it is. There's the plan established in Genesis 1 and 2. Plan A. And plan A is still the plan. That pattern established in the garden of God's people living in God's place under God's rule and enjoying his blessing is not something that has ever been discarded. Sure, at times it has been so obscured or neglected or opposed that it seems altogether lost. But even then, even in those times, perhaps especially in those times, God's faithfulness and his commitment and his love are revealed. In the Garden of Eden, God began a good work, remember? A very good work by his own assessment. And what God begins, he continues. And what he continues, he completes. And the end result, because of God's faithfulness, because of his commitment, because of his perseverance and patience and grace and his unrelenting love, because it always was about and always will be about Jesus, in the end, plan A will turn out to be not just good or even very good. Plan A will turn out to be perfect. More of that in weeks to come. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, thank you for giving us your word. Thank you that it is one coherent and cohesive story that introduces you to us and us to you, well, you to us anyway, that helps us to know you. Uh, Thank you that Jesus fulfills all the hopes and expectations and promises that are laid out in the Old Testament. Thank you also that he has explained all that to us, to his disciples and through them to us. Father, we pray that you will help us to see clearly your plan for the world so that we might find our place in it, so that we wouldn't come to your word thinking, hey, God, how are you feeding into my life and my plans, but rather that we'll understand that we're meant to come to your words, uh, word to find our place in your plans. And we pray that uh, as a result, we would be 
your people, uh, enjoying your rule, enjoying your blessing, and looking forward to uh, our eternal inheritance in your place forever. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.